1: reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company,
0: Golden, Colorado. Welcome to Burn It All Down, the feminist sports podcast you need. We are so happy you're here. This week is the first of two episodes where we will focus on the best of 2018 from the sports world and specifically the best of Burn It All Down. I'm Jessica Luther, and I'm joined today by the whole crew, professors Amira Rose Davis and Brenda Elsie, and fellow writers and journalists Lindsay Gibbs and Shereen Ahmed. Before we get into the meat of the episode, I want to take a moment to thank all of our patrons. You make this independent, commercial-free, feminist sports podcast possible. Your donations allow us to afford quick, high-quality editing, to provide transcripts for each episode, to have wonderful graphics to go along with the podcast, and thank you to Shelby Weldon for making those for us, and to purchase ads to help spread the word. We're hoping in 2019 to hire a part-time producer to smooth out the -the behind-the-scenes work that it takes to put the show together each week so if you're not already a patron, please consider becoming one. Your monthly donation can be as small as $1 per month or as big as you'd like, and in exchange for the donation, you get access to exclusive content, such as special Patreon-only podcast segments, a monthly newsletter curated by the hosts, an opportunity to add to the burn pile, and more. You can find a link to our Patreon campaign in the show notes of this episode or on our website. We are so thankful to everyone who's donated so far. Thank you. On today's episode, we talk about our favorite sports moments from 2018 before replaying some of our favorite discussion segments from this year, which include the time we talked about the so-called woke Sports Illustrated Swimsuit issue, and another when we discussed Kobe's relationship to women's basketball. Then we'll wrap it up with a long burn pile focused specifically on everything and everyone around the Larry Nassar case who deserves to be tossed into the metaphorical burn pile. Let's get going. Okay, it's been a long year, but there have been some wonderful moments in sport that are worth looking back on before the new year is here. Lindsay, what did you love in sports this year?
1: Uh, hi, I loved everything about women's basketball this year. <laughs> uh, the I am still buzzing from the women's Final Four. Yeah. Uh, the Enrique Gumbale yeah. Classic, as I like to call it. The two mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> proverbial buzzer beaters that she beat to take down Yukon in the semis and then Mississippi State in the final to get Notre Dame that championship. I mean, it was it was electrified. It was yeah. electrifying. And I honestly still can't believe it happened. Um, and then, you know, that led to a really phenomenal WNBA season where we saw more parody than we've seen in a long time. We saw the Minnesota Lynx and the Los Angeles Sparks both struggle and they had been the dominant teams all year, which mean we got to see some kind of new faces, new stars emerge. It was, of course, the year of Stewie with Brianna Stewart on and off the court with her coming out with her own Me Too story and really inspiring a nation and the world in that way. And then, you know, having her MVP year, winning MVP of the finals, winning the finals, USA Basketball MVP, she won it all. And those WNBA semifinals, which both went to the fifth game, which were just absolutely phenomenal. And it was so cool for me. I cover the Washington Mystics and seeing them make it all the way to the WNBA finals just meant that I got a courtside seat to a lot of playoff games, which was a real treat for me as a reporter. And it was a phenomenal experience. I don't know if you all remember, I got on national TV giving myself a mustache, <laughs> um, which was just a personal- I remember. <laughs> great moment for me so you know lots of highlights
0: <laughs> awesome thank you Lindsay. amira i feel like anyone who listens to this podcast probably can guess <laughs> where you're going with this but what was one of your favorite sport moments this year wait was it the super bowl amira yeah. oh sorry sorry oh sorry I oh. <laughs> oh. Lindsay. you have jokes sorry sorry sorry
2: you have jokes we have rings it's <laughs> <it>. <laughs>
1: That is so true. That is so true.
2: Burn. Um, so while the Patriots did not win the Super Bowl that they appeared in for the third straight <laughs> good, year, something right, right. ridiculous that. like yeah. that, um, it's okay because the Boston Red Sox did win a championship. Um, and it was, and actually, my favorite game of the series we didn't win, which was the epic, like, two-day long, oh. how many innings? 17. Um and that was just, like, the collective experience of watching it in disbelief as, like, every time it looked like it was going to be over, it, like, somehow kept going. Um, and that was really fun. And, you know, I, it's no surprise how much I love Mookie Betts and JBJ and David Price, basically all the black guys on <laughs> um, I adore. And... um yeah. So they were a squad that I enjoyed watching from, you know, the spring, from spring training all the way up into when they got the championships, uh, this fall. So that was, um, my clearly like high key sporting moment, but my low key sporting moment that I just have to give a quick shout out to was just like a, a local game here in Rec Hall with Penn State's volleyball, one of the top volleyball teams in the nation playing Nebraska, another team, uh, who just lost uh this week for – um they came in second, so they they lost the championship. They won it last year, but they knocked Penn State out of the tournament last year when Penn State was the number one seed. And th- these two programs constantly go back and forth, and Nebraska always gets the upper hand. And in mid-October, Nebraska came here to State College to play a game that wasn't pretty, but it was intense. Recall was rocking. It went to five sets, and – um, Penn State came from behind to defeat Nebraska at a time in the season where it was like, you know, these were top teams battling and the electricity in that room was just why I like sports. Like it was palpable. Everybody was so invested living and dying on every, you know, spike, every ex- exchange of the ball. Um, and it was that sheer energy um that fear you have no idea what's going to happen and the the eruption of joy when when we pulled it off that reminded me why um I love sports the way I do so it was a less known moment not necessarily on many people's radars as the the Red Sox win but I have to put it up there as the same kind of exhilarating feeling so that that was those were my best sports moments of the year
0: beautiful thank you Amira Shireen how about you, how about you? Um, this is going to be no surprise to anybody
3: that my favorite <laughs> sports moments, uh, sort of circumbulate around football. And in addition to the Iranian women's national futsal team winning the AFC championship, which is really fun, you can see some of those clips on YouTube. They're gifs now. Um, obviously the men's World Cup for me was huge. Not only did I call Croatia France final, watching, you know. Ivan Rakitic and Luka Modric get the recognition I feel they so aptly deserve with Croatia the way that team is. It also restarted a conversation about refugees in sport because Modric is a refugee, was a refugee. And I think that's really important to recognize and the conversations that started of that. But honestly, France winning the World Cup was beautiful. It was fun. The conversations about racism in France, and considering the amount of xenophobia in that country, and what it is, the conversations about it being an African, North African, or West African team, in addition to being French, and what identity is. I love the conversations around it. I really, really enjoyed the World Cup. Um Ahmed Musa's goal is one of my favorites from Nigeria. I still have it in my head, but one of my favorite moments of the year is when Iranian goalkeeper Alira Zabierandand saved a penalty that was taken by Cristiano Ronaldo and watching this man go down in flames (laughs) is always one of my personal favorite things. And so I will hold that closely. Also the story of Yeren Van's life and how he was homeless, worked in a pizza shelter, into a pizza place in Tehran while living like in a shelter, the story of how he came up. And then he, he saved one of the most important penalties. Iran actually did lose that match to Portugal, but Cristiano Ronaldo's face being devastated is always something I hold close to my heart. So there you go.
0: Awesome. Thank you so much, Shereen. So I'm going to piggyback off of Lynn's. One of the things I wanted to mention uh, was WNBA semifinals, specifically Sue Bird in game 5 against Phoenix she was wearing that mask over her broken nose cuz oh. Brianna Stewart had accidentally broken it and she came out in the final quarter she scored 14 points making 5 of 6 shots 4 of 5 from the three behind the three point line it was it's one of those moments where you're watching it and you just cannot believe that a single person can do that. And I mean, I know she doesn't love it when people bring it up, but at her age, like she is, I think the oldest player in the WNBA. Um, It was, it was just so fun to watch. And I just hold those moments. Um, So thank you, Sue Bird. I also wanted to give a shout out to Castor Semenya for continuing to be spectacular and win almost yeah. every race that she enters. Um, and then, like, I don't want to forget that the Winter Olympics <laughs> happened this year. We spent a lot yes. of time talking about it. So shout-outs to Chloe Kim for being amazing in the way that we knew that she could be and would be. Mm-hmm. And Mariah, man, when she hit that triple axel, like, I just... Like, <gasps> my I, my heart stopped as she left in the air, and then she landed that thing, and her face... Like, I rewatched the smile on her face at the end of the... Um, I mean, I think she held it together, right, until the end when she had finished, and then she was just the joy that she felt in in accomplishing that. So, um, those are all just wonderful moments in sport for me this year. Uh, Brenda, why don't you round this out for us? All right, mine's a tie. I have a tie. One is Pussy Riot
4: high-fiving yes. Mbappe <laughs> at <laughs> yeah. <in> the finals. <laughs> Of the Men's World Cup of 2018, and I thought it was just awesome to see disruption in the finals of the mm-hmm. Men's World Cup. It rarely happens. It's very controlled. And given the fact that it was in Russia, I feel like it was even more controlled than ever. And it was it was just a wonderful moment to see this young superstar who handled his fame like, really well and with a lot of elegance. I mean, because it was just it, he was just amazing in that tournament and surprised a lot of people. And to see that combination, I just that image is so iconic and it's burned in my brain. And that is second or tied to my other favorite moment in sport, which was the Copa América Femenina or the Women's uh, American Cup, because only Americans in the U.S. call the U.S. America. And so (laughs) PSA for everybody out there. Um, And basically, Brazil won all seven of their matches so handily to win that. And they really could use some more competition. But I have to say, just hats off, 13 different Brazilian players scored in seven matches. Wow. 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 That's insane. That's how much talent do you have? Where is that factory located? And why don't I have any? Um, it's, yeah, 13 <laughs> different like players scored. And, of course, the fact that Formiga in her 21st year on the Brazilian national team, 21st year. So she's been on the national team longer than some of the members have been alive And (laughs) she scored and it was just so awesome because it's like, oh, I have so much respect for her. She scored against Colombia; It's a beautiful goal. So those are tied for my best, my best of sports moments this year.
0: Awesome. I'm very proud of us for how quickly we did that because I feel like there are so many things that we could talk about and it makes me very hyped for what is to come. The first segment we want to revisit before the year ends comes from episode 42, which we posted on February 20th. In it, Amira, Brenda, and Lindsay discussed their complicated feelings about this year's quote-unquote woke Sports Illustrated swimsuit issue. Was it empowering, exploitation, or both?
2: This week, Sports Illustrated released yet another swimsuit issue, as they do every year. This one featured many athletes and just... I know for us, Inspired uh, a very complicated discussion. And we want to kind of wade into that now. So Lindsay, you want to kick us off? Yeah, I I do.
1: (laughs) Got a lot of, as uh, Amira said, complicated thoughts about this. and I'm kind of excited to work through that. But let's just set the stage that, you know, it's that time of year again, when in a rare moment, women grace the pages and the cover of the most prominent sports magazine. But of course, this is for the Sports Illustrated Swimsuit Edition. This is been heralded as the first swimsuit edition of the hashtag Me to era. And according to Vanity Fair, this year, quote, the team behind the media institution set out to make a magazine where models were as much participants as objects. Just... Let that soak in for a minute. Okay. Mm. So there were there were five athletes who were really heavily featured in this issue. You had Sloane Stevens, and Jeannie Bouchard, who are of course the tennis players. You had Allie Raceman, the gymnast, and then you had Brenna Huckabee, who is a um Paralympic snowboarder. So that was kind of interesting to it was, she was the first Paralympic athlete to be included. She has an amputated leg. And so she was the first paralympic athlete to be included in the SI swimsuit edition. And also you had Paige Spironak. I don't know if I'm saying her name right, but she is the golfer who is best known not for L- even per starts on the LPGA tour because there haven't been that many, but for her Instagram following that she's really garnered, which she has like 1.3 million followers on Instagram. But but one of the things they did this year was to try and get this message across that you don't, you know, have to be modest to be respected, which is something that we here at Burn It All Down are, you know, that's a great, that is true, like, (laughs) very much believe that, right? But one of the things they did was they had a lot of photo shoots that didn't include any swimsuits at all, and instead had these models, and then some of the athletes so completely nude, but then with words painted on their body. For example, Allie Raceman had, you know, trust yourself and live for you. Abuse is never okay. Women do not have to be modest to be respected. You know, that was written, written on her body. You also had... Robin Lawley, who was an older model who had nurturer, mother, creative, human, you know, written over her naked body. And it was the point of this was to be like in her own words. So it was supposed to look at, you know, what's empowering to these women. But it's it's tough, because for me, this is complicated, because it's still all in a magazine that was intended for the male gaze. And that has always used women's bodies as a selling point. So it, it's. I hope that all these women were empowered, and they do seem like they were empowered. But is this the best way for the empowerment to happen? And where does this take the conversation?
0: Amira?
2: Yeah, you know – It was interesting. I was looking for posters for my office this week and I was looking for women athletes. And so I went to Amazon as I do for everything in my life. And I like put in women athlete posters and legitimately the first five pages were pictures from ESPN's body issue of women athletes blown up and decontextualize from the issue. So if you're not familiar, the ESPN body issue features a wide variety of athletes of shapes, sizes, colors, men, women, and it's a celebration of a body and athletic bodies removed from that context. And to have the only posters returning for women athletes being when they don't have clothes on was jarring to me. And I think it was through that lens that I first encountered this, this SI issue that I immediately thought about, well, what happens when these photos are removed from the context when empowerment for one can also mean objectification, you know, for everybody else who's passing the magazine around or going to take the pictures and then make a poster print and sell it on Amazon. And that becomes your, your kind of go-to image of, of your athletic body. And, and that, that sits with me in a very troubling way. And then I guess the other part of me thinks about objectification and how perhaps the conversation we have about the objectification of athletes and, and bodies happens certainly in a gendered context, but does that at times obscure the way that we, I mean, even a few weeks ago, we were sitting here ogling about Pita you know, Tuatufua's oily flag-bearing body. And I think about those kind of casual ways that, I also participate in objectifying male athletes and which doesn't necessarily have a a system or avenue, right? Institutional support behind it. We're not necessarily getting the swimsuit issue like that. So there are kind of degrees of difference, but it has me thinking kind of very deeply about what it means to objectify athletes in particular. Brenda?
4: Yeah, I think it's so interesting what you said about taking it out of the context. So on the one hand, you have, you have this process by which they don't get to control what happens to that image. So it's empowering for them, and I agree with Lindsay. I hope it is empowering for them. But, but we're talking about images that go beyond. They're not authors and owners of those images going forward. They're owners of their bodies, right? But part of it, too, is the, is the context, which is that Sports Illustrated only features about 4%. Well, 4% of its covers are women. And mm-hmm. there was a study mm-hmm. that was done recently in the International Journal of Sports Sociology that showed, demonstrated that there were actually more women on Sports Illustrated covers between 1954 and 1965 than there was from 2000 to 2000 to today. And so this isn't something that's improved at all. And I think it would be very different if women athletes had a lot more coverage in that magazine. I would wager That the almost the 4% in change of women in Sports Illustrated would be cut in half if it wasn't for the swimsuit issue. Well, I think that Mm. was not
1: including the swimsuit issue, maybe. I don't know. I think the study um, does include it. I
4: think it does. And, And in fact, though, if Sports Illustrated, I mean, who's the audience for this? One of the things is that in the subscription to Sports Illustrated, you can even opt out of the swimsuit issue. So it's like it, it's like they know very well that they're trying to hit a particular demographic. And in their marketing packages, they brag that this is the white male market between 18 and 35, that they'll hit more people from the Super Bowl. So I don't care who the creative team is. The the economic structural model there is exactly what we think it is. You know, it's about exploiting women and, and their bodies. And they have the right to to participate in that. And it's not just one, like one... Layered. It's not, you know, so simple as that. But I do think if we step back, the business model is is very simple.
2: Yeah. You know, it got me thinking historically, you know, I, so those, those covers that you mentioned, for instance, in the 50s and 60s, that's right around the time that I'm researching and my women are appearing on some of these covers, but also in newspapers, in black newspapers, in ebony and jet. And I find it a really interesting discussion because. One of the things that I see then a lot is uh, the framing of these magazines, especially in in Jet and Ebony, wanting to overemphasize femininity, right, and demonstrate that one could be female and athletic, and that those two things could coincide and to kind of push back on the notion that athletics made you manly or that. And they really had to play up this kind of heterosexual inclination as well at the time. And so there's a lot of photo shoots that say like baseball player Tony Stone took, where they insisted either she was wearing a dress. There's one picture of her topless laying down on a table while her husband is giving her a massage and they make sure to caption, you know, she's getting a massage from her husband after the game. There's all this kind of curation of image and you know, part of it was strategic. This is for the Olympians. This is around the time where sex testing was uh, happening, which was a really invasive test at the time. And particularly black women were more susceptible to these kind of invasive testing procedures and scrutiny about their femininity. But it also makes me think that there's a lot of parallels in terms of image and, and presentation that that seem to be trying to still push back on this idea that somehow you can't be athlete and a woman or, or what that means right? is you still are kind of being a spectacle or defying the odds. If you are uh, a woman who's an athlete and still, you know, wants to wear makeup or show off your body or whatnot. And that kind of historical continuum, I think, you know, is is a bit disheartening that that it's still happening, and it's interesting to me to document those that change over time. Lindsay,
1: yeah, I mean, one of the things that that concerns me, I think, the most about this is that I feel like we're still setting up the gold standard for women is still being viewed by men as sexy, you know, and that's what you know, and, and I don't don't know if that's If that's true, but I think that's my concern is that that's the message we're still like sending, you know, and, and that, that's where I think I get stuck on this, right? Because, you know, I want all these women to feel empowered and beautiful and From I look, I follow a lot of models on social media and who've done the and athletes who've done the SI swimsuit issue. And they all say great things about MJ Day, who is the editor, full-time editor of the Sports Illustrated Swimsuit Edition. And she does really seem to care about her models and, you know, create a really supportive environment. And you know, they all just love her, and that's that's great, like that they're they're finding this empowerment. I'll read from that Vanity Fair piece again that you know m j Day runs the swimsuit edition like a den mother. She pays attention to the comfort and emotions and comfort levels of her employees m j Day says, quote, "This is a safe space." m j Day says, but she then goes on m j in this interview to talk about. How they're trying to really showcase a variety of images of beauty, you know? So she says, We are, why are we only saying to ourselves that there's one type of person who is worthy of being celebrated? It's bullshit and we all know it and we live it. And yet it, yet it's continued to be propagated in the media. Okay. <laughs> yes, I agree with that quote very much. But look, if you look at the SI swimsuit, it is a very narrow standard deviation of what is beauty, right? Like Sloane Stevens might be slightly more muscular, but Sloane Stevens is like one of the most gorgeous women <laughs> in the world, right? Like there's no doubt about the fact that like Sloane Stevens is st- stunningly gorgeous by pretty much all standards, right? And so, you know, same with like Jeannie Bouchard, you know, and these other athletes are giving. So I think that's like where I really get kind of caught up is the fact that we are still – Like, I understand that for a swimsuit issue, like putting people of color in there and putting women who are a size 10 instead of a size two, that these are supposed to be like hugely radical acts. But all of these people still fit into a very narrow standard of beauty, you know, and that's so how far can you take that empowerment? Right. Like SI is still very much like reinforcing these standards of beauty that we have. Yeah.
4: Well, I always ask myself. I mean, exactly what Lindsay sort of just ended on, which is how far does that empowerment go? But wh- who is this empowering besides? If if it's them, great. But like, how many girls are looking at the SI cover and being like, "I feel so empowered." I mean, I I'm sorry to say, but this does absolutely nothing for the for the larger structure of sexism that exists, and the fact that they're like trouncing around on Caribbean islands has a real gross thing for me. You know, I mean, Puerto Rico doesn't have power, you know, but it's so hot and sexy to roll around on a beach that could be whatever Caribbean island, right? So there's also a whole context to, you know, where both a very narrow standard of beauty, all of the bathing suits are like typical of kind of pornographic, right? Featuring and covering certain sort of styles. Very minimalistic. (laughs) But also very traditional, right? I mean, they're not featuring the muscles. They're actually not. I mean, the muscles are part of those women's bodies and they come along with it. But it's all about like the peekaboo, you know, genital breasts, peep shots, you know, and and women occasionally like licking their fingers, (laughs) you know, or looking like they like accidentally you know are just waiting for some man to come on to that beach. And so anyway, I just I I can't imagine a girl seeing it and being like thank you so much for doing that. It's really cleared stuff up. I, but I think that there are girls who see that
1: because there are girls I mean, we, we're we still sending the message to girls that they need to be seen as sexy, right? And, like, that that is the holy grail. So, in that note, I think we that it is empowering to girls. I'm just not sure if it's empowering to girls in the right way, you know? Like, I think that there are actually tons of, of younger girls who see this. Maybe not you or I, but, like, who do see this and say, like, yes, oh, my gosh, like, this is great, you know, because she can still be sexy and, you know, know, I want to be sexy and that's what concerns me I mean look I follow all these athletes and whenever these athletes are in SI like and they post their photos on Instagram they're those are the most those are the most liked they get and they are they they repost them and repost them you know Caroline Wozniacki who is you know phenomenal athlete and love her so much and she posts her SI swimsuit you know outtakes You know, I mean, at least once a month, I feel like, you know, same with Jeannie Bouchard, you know, they keep bringing up these images, and they keep wanting to be validated that way. And they keep showing that it's important to be validated that way. And I don't begrudge them at all. I just worry that like, I I worry, why do they feel so proud of that? Right? Like, why is that such a big thing to them?
2: I think is where I get stuck. It's so interesting, because I really like ESPN's Body Issue. It, it, this is why, to me, it brings me back to the context and where I think I think the kind of way the layouts work in ESPN's body issue and the kind of celebration of athleticism is, I don't know. It's just like it, that, like, I don't have the same reaction and I don't know why. Like, I'm still kind of working through these things. I think, you know. Well,
4: they're, the posed, context, they're like, posed entirely differently. They're They're not laying down on a beach waiting for someone to take a picture of them or have sex with them, which these women in SI clearly are. And, and so the mm. pose is absolutely central whereas the ESPN body issue they're like running and leaping and jumping and flexing right. they're
1: celebrating the athletic what, what SI is doing is conforming these athletic or women of color bodies to still fit these standard poses and standard definition of sexy whereas I feel like ESPN is more we are going to find what's sexy about your you know or what's attractive about your specific body and cater to that Raise my And has been very, of course, you know, this is all happening for her right after she's come out about being abused by Nassar. And she's been such a great advocate for women and for survivors in that. And, you know, she did tell, I think, People Magazine that she's had people telling her I don't understand how you you can complain that you were molested because you participate in Sports Illustrated Swimsuit Magazine. So I just want to say, like, that is fucking disgusting. And by sitting here and sorting through our comfort level with this and what it all means and the context, we want to in no way, like, shame these women (laughs) or say that they are anything but wonderful women.
0: Next up is our discussion from episode 49 in April about the relationship between Kobe Bryant and women's basketball and our struggle with it, given his history with women and because the sport can use all the champions it can get. On the episode that day were Shireen, Lindsay, Amira, and me. So Kobe and women's basketball. Let's do this, y'all. Lindsay, you want to get us started? Sure. I'm going to try and be brief here because I know I just have a lot of things to say, but I want to get, I just want to
1: get (laughs) it, get this conversation started. All right. Let's start with the women's final four, which was absolutely incredible last week. Of course, it had the two overtime games in the semifinal and then the championship, which. Arike, a, a Gumbawale, my new best friend in my mind <laughs> won on a almost last second three pointer from the corner to take down Mississippi State in the semifinals and in the finals, there was a very um, notable presence in the crowd, which was Kobe Bryant and his wife and his daughter. Kobe has long been a champion of women's basketball. And considering that women's basketball needs a lot of high-profile champions, that that is a good thing for the sport right now, and that Kobe is so beloved in the basketball community, as expected, and as is always the case when Kobe shows up, Kobe gets a lot of airtime, Kobe gets a lot of tension, Kobe sucks a lot of the air out of the room for being Kobe and for saying very, I would say, good, but also like not... I wish it wasn't a big deal that there was a man who was like, these women are awesome. <laughs> like everyone's like, mm-hmm. Oh, let me fawn over you forever. Like you are such a feminist or whatever, you know, it just, it just drives me crazy, but that's, that's kind of another subject, but I want to, we want to specifically hone in on Kobe right now. Of course, this is troubling to me. And I think a lot of fans because Kobe in 2003 was accused of rape and the allegations were incredibly troubling to say the least. The way his legal team treated his, the woman who he had this encounter with was set a tone for victim blaming and slut shaming that we still see used time after time in legal defenses by high profile athletes to this day. And there are very – while I try and go into every situation with a very open mind, even though my trolls on Twitter will tell me I don't, I looked back at this case in 2016 when Kobe was was retiring, and there's, there, there is very good reason to still be troubled by everything that happened here. I'm going to read you Kobe's apology statement at the time, which he gave as part of – a settlement to end this civil suit. And at the time that this statement was given, the woman also dropped the, uh, stopped cooperating with a criminal investigation. And this is kind of what made all of this go away for Kobe. But here's the statement quote, although I truly believe this encounter between us was consensual. I recognize now that she did not and does not view this incident the same way I did after months of reviewing Discovery, listening to her attorney, and even her testimony in person, I now understand how she feels that she did not consent to this encounter. It's kind of a staggering apology because there's, and there's, Kobe is saying, I understand that she believes that she was raped and I'm kind of conceding to that fact. So while he's not saying in the affirmative that he raped her, he is very much giving credence to everything that this woman has been saying and has been crucified in the press for. Since this statement and since he came forward and gave his wife that famous apology ring, which was for cheating on her because he did admit to having this encounter with this woman. Kobe hasn't talked about this. There's been no reckoning for Kobe Bryant. Kobe Bryant lost a lot of sponsors during the deal, but he gained them all back in some. He, of course, finished an illustrious basketball career. He won an Oscar this year. And mm-hmm. we all still worship at the altar of Kobe Bryant. That statement that I just read is the last he said on any of this. To me, that feels very, very unfinished. <laughs> and that leaves a lot to be desired. And it's really hard for me to lift him up as pretty much at this point, the most high profile champion of women's basketball on this sports illustrated cover, which Arike Agumbawale was about her shot, which was this incredible moment for women's sports. The text of it said Arike Agum- Agumbawale brings home title for Notre Dame. Even Kobe isn't all. So all these women are sharing this moment with Kobe. And you guys, I just can't. I don't know what to do with this. Somebody help me.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's so it's so complicated because he does bring the attention, right? And and you're right that he, like, sucks the air out of the room when he does it. But at the same time, <sighs> women's basketball needs all the attention it can get. But the idea that this is how they're getting attention, I I have so many feelings all the time about this. I understand the embrace of him by the league and the sport that, that needs this kind of attention on it. I mean, Arike... Agumwale was on Ellen this week and surprise guest, (laughs) Kobe Bryant was there and I wonder if part of the reason she was there is because they knew they could get him too and so... But that's great. She was on there. She got to talk about what happened and how great women's basketball is. And I'm happy about that. So I I don't know. Shireen, what are your thoughts?
3: I have so many thoughts. Lindsay, the piece that you wrote for Think Progress on this was really, really, really important about when the case was happening and how he shaped how the media handles abusers. And I wrote a piece in April 2016, which subsequently went into Best Canadian Sports Writing 2017. And it was a response.
1: Not even humble humble brag. But
3: <laughs> what the reason I did that is because not just women's basketball, but fans of, of basketball in general still idolize this person. And it makes me super uncomfortable that this happens because there's no discussion. I mean, if Kobe was to come out and sort of say, listen, I'm going to donate like a million dollars to – and I use that figure because Cap donates so generously and so easily – to uh, women's shelters or uh, forced survivors or Me Too, right? Did Kobe say anything about Me Too? I can't even remember. And that was a movement that literally went everywhere. When Brianna Stewart came out and wrote that piece, did he come out and support or retweet when he's all over, you know, supposedly all over women's basketball and a supporter? You didn't, you didn't say anything. And I'm sure his handlers told him not to say anything because of the obvious reasons. But also – I agree with what Lindsay says about women having to share it. And I do struggle with the idea that, you know, women's basketball needs to be amplified and ergo needs to rely on Kobe. But I actually don't feel that way. I think women's basketball relies – on women who always do the work anyway. And, you know, maybe we can nudge Steph Curry and be like, can you start talking or email pop? Cause we can email pop and be like, can you start bigging it up? Like I just, there's gotta be another alternative to Kobe Bryant. My God, there's got, maybe we can get Zlatan, Zlatan Ibrahimovic who was on the sidelines of the, uh, of the Lakers to start talking about, it. I don't know anyone, but Kobe is literally my, I need that on a shirt. Anyone but Kobe.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Amira?
2: Yeah, I I also have complicated uh, feelings about this. One, the first things first, I think that it is also a a kind of stunning example of uh, the kind of idea, the myth that rape allegation will ruin your life because he seems to be, you know, rolling along just fine. (laughs) He won an Oscar. I just can't get over (laughs) the Oscar. I'm (laughs) sorry. And it wasn't even the best in that category for him, to be honest. (laughs) <laughs> <But> okay. <laughs> no problem. I'm glad you got that off okay. the sure. <laughs> But a lot of my kind of complicated feelings come because I've been wrestling lately with the idea of rehab or rehabilitating mm-hmm. your image, both in a kind of corporate sense, like, oh now I can sell things or have myself appear courtside and everybody fawn over me. But really thinking concretely about what what do you do? and where where do you go after allegations or after you've confessed, or like I've just been really kind of wrestling with this idea, and thinking about like Shereen what you just said about his kind of utter lack of acknowledgement, and Lindsay, you noted that that confessions the last time you talked about that. Would it feel less icky if he you know took ownership of that or said me to and 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 said, you know what Molly Ringwall just wrote a piece where she completely Mm-hmm. considered and returned to movies she was in and the way she was part of a certain type of process of this and i think that what would it look like if he was doing that and not kind of running or shielding from it but like embracing it would we would that make it better or would there be a way in which it, did, it didn't matter because once this happens it's you know that's it. That you're always going to be carrying that with you for the rest of your life, and and so those are the things I'm thinking about. And of course, I I, I compare this to Ben Roethlisberger a lot, and in the ways legacies of of allegations can hang on you, but the disparate ways in which people are treated. I don't know. Like I, I I'm I'm very much wrestling with that idea. What would it look like to be for him to be accountable?
0: Right. And I think one of the most difficult things about this is how do we decide if we don't have an idea of what that means to the victim, to the person harmed? But of course, we shouldn't know on some like, we shouldn't be like knocking on this person's door asking. And and so how we as a society or community decide that it's enough, that this is, that accountability has been had and, and... we don't have to carry it with us all the time, anytime that this person is there. It's just, it's so hard to measure. And I, and I do think it, I mean, yeah, on some level, I want to tell you what I personally think he should be doing, but does it matter what I think he should be doing? I don't know. And and, and that's right. one of the things that I wrestle with when I think about, I don't not redemption, I guess rehab, I don't know. It's so complicated and it's hard. Uh, Lindsay?
1: Yeah, I think to bring this back to women's basketball, One of the reasons why I don't get so angry with the women's basketball community about this is because it's a universal thing with Kobe, right? There's this universal acceptance and moving on. So it's not like all corners of the sports world and the entertainment world are – blackballing Kobe for this, and then it's just women's basketball who's, you know, celebrating him. I mean, journalists, we love, you know, Jamel Hill, friend of the show, I like to say, you know, who we've interviewed, you know, she interviews Kobe and doesn't bring us. up. You know, this is, it's just kind of universally accepted and moved on. And that's really hard to grapple with, especially as we come Today, I mean, I think sometimes the significance of the Me Too movement, it's a very important step, but it's it's very much just a step and nobody knows what the rest of this staircase looks like or even if it exists. And, you know, we have to keep kind of building it as we go along. And part of that is figuring out what we do with people like Kobe Bryant, whose allegations happened so long ago but that are still there, that are still there, that are still troubling and that we think there's still some reckoning that needs to be done. Uh, You know, I wrote about this a little bit with Sean White, which was a very different situation uh, on the spectrum, but it was you know sexual harassment, and I I don't want to say that I'm saying that is rape. I'm not, but one of my things with his Olympic redemption arc was that NBC didn't even ask him about it in their softball interviews, you know, with him, and I felt that one of my things was I, I'm not saying that the these that this guy needs to be banned. I'm not saying I don't want to watch enjoy his you know gold medal winning run in the Olympics. I'm saying I think if we're talking about his story the past four years, he should be asked about these incredibly troubling allegations, you know, and that's it has to continue to be part of the conversation. So that's why I think even though we don't have all the answers right now continuing to bring it up, continuing to grapple with it. And I'm not saying that Kobe needs to has to go away forever. But I'm saying that this this right now what's happening also isn't the answer. So uh, even though I don't have the answer, we've got to keep
0: pushing this conversation forward. Absolutely Shereen.
3: I'm okay with Kobe going away forever, but no, just kidding, not really. But the last thing is is that I can say with certainty that although a lot of media does sort of ignore those hard questions or doesn't want to bring it up or maybe are told that by their superiors they cannot bring it up because that's kind of the power that he wields, is that he will never be on Burn It All Down. And I don't like to speak for us <laughs> as a whole, but I'm pretty sure I can say that and that's all that's that's it for me.
1: Unless he wants to talk about the rape out you know unless he wants yes. to If Kobe yeah, okay. would like to specifically address what <laughs> happened in 2003 and what he has learned from it. <laughs> then we he has space here. He has space. Those but but he should know those are the only questions we will be asking. <laughs>
2: Amira. Yeah, I think one of the things that leads me to think on is the particular vehicle of sports in re- rehabbing an image. Like yeah. you said, Lindsay, like watching Sean White like tear through that course. There's something about sports, and that I'm thinking this particularly reflecting on chap. I can't even say it. I'm from Massachusetts. I'm the worst person. Chap, Chap. Chap, chap-, 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 chap- <laughs> a book quick. <laughs> Chapacritic. Yeah, there you go. Thank you. As that movie is <laughs> coming out. Yeah. hush, hush Lizzie. As that movie is coming out and, you know, thinking about how scandals in politics move a certain way. And it leads me to think about the sports world and how sports, especially because there's so much embodiment there, we watch them, we consume them, they can raise your blood pressure and make you scream and make you cry and invoke all these emotions. But largely, I feel like there's a particular way that you can forget. I mean, we're all cheering for Tiger again, you know, in his comeback. I think, you know, Lindsay made this point earlier, but I think that there is a way that sports is a particular vehicle that allows these conversations to drop off unless we're very relentless on continuing to ask the question.
0: Thank you. And I just want to end by telling everyone to watch women's basketball. Do it because they're amazing and not because Kobe Bryant tells you they're amazing. Finally, it seems right to end 2018 at Burn It All Down with a 30-minute burn pile from episode 38, which posted on January 23rd, all about the many failures around the Larry nasser case. Each of us picked a different aspect of this nightmare to highlight and then toss onto the burn pile. We recorded this within days of the sentencing hearing for Nasser, wherein 156 girls and women read victim impact statements in court. We have covered the fallout from this case from the very beginning of this podcast and will continue to do so.
4: And now we're going to pivot to a a very serious topic and one that we'd like to send out a trigger warning to listeners about. The conversation that follows will probably have details of sexual abuse that may be very explicit and upsetting to people. We'll put timestamps on the show notes in case those of you need to to skip it, want to skip it. This week in Michigan, Larry Nasser, the Team USA Gymnastics doctor and associate professor at Michigan State University, heard the testimonies of the women he assaulted. At least 150 girls and women suffered sexual abuse at Nasser's hands for over 20 years. As part of his plea bargain, all of his victims have the right to appear in court and give their testimony to confront Nasser. The testimonies reveal so much about how people and institutions refused to listen to the girls and women. Instead of listening to those hundreds of survivors, people chose to rest on the supposed authority of one man. An all too familiar monster, as it turns out. This week at Burn It All Down, we've struggled to think of how to honor the survivors and articulate actual words that make sense of a case of this magnitude. So we've decided to forego our usual format of a burn pile and structure the conversation as the biggest incinerator ever to burn it all down. We're going to start with Amira, who's going to talk about her particular choice aspect of the case. Amira? Yeah,
2: I want to start with the man himself. And how he, how he revealed how shitty his character is, even in this moment. This week, as uh, hundreds of, I should say hundreds, almost a hundred survivors stood in front of him in a courtroom and revealed to the judge, to the courtroom, to the world, the wake of, of devastation he left. He had the audacity to write a single-spaced, six-page letter complaining that it was too hard for him to listen to this description of abuse, that he was mentally not able to withstand this, blaming the judge and and the courtroom for turning it into the media What the living... (laughs) What the fuck? I'm sorry. This is the audacity. The audacity of causing this pain And not being able able to withstand a day? These women, these girls, many of them, still minors, have been living with this for years. And you can't take 48 motherfucking hours to hear what you have inflicted? They're holding up a mirror to you and you are running away? You are a coward. And kudos to the judge in this case who responded to this ridiculous letter and said, listen, spending four or five days listening to them is significantly minor considering the hours of pleasure you have had at their expense and ruining their lives. I just, it, this is about power and you can see now that he is shredded from it. He has no ability to exert himself over these brave young women. He's cowering. He's cowering and he's weeping and he is just even in this moment. I don't know what else I would have expected. I knew he was a monster, but this revealed him to be a coward. I'm I'm burning it. I'm I'm enraged. I just have no words.
1: Yeah, I've been listening to pretty much all these victim statements, and one of the things that. Has struck me that I think the level of his evilness and his soullessness it continue. You don't think it could astound you anymore, and yet it does over and over and over again. What he's gotten lost out of this conversation is that not only did he sexually abuse, which is 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 the worst not only I've ever said, but most of these women came to him for specific treatments of pain Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. he did not properly treat them and many times he actually invented diagnoses of severe back pain or misdiagnosed them so they would keep coming to him so he would he could keep abusing them for his own pleasure so many of these girls besides the emotional pain and the you know the ways their lives have fallen apart they're still in extreme physical pain because they were never treated properly when they were supposed to be
4: And we know how emotional trauma works in the body and exacerbates all kinds of, you know, their psychosomatic reactions to those types of things on top of the fact that they weren't treated for their actual physical ailment. Shireen, what do you want to burn about this case? Well, amongst the many things,
3: like everyone else wants to incinerate, for me, one of the most harrowing things was the lack of media coverage on this particular. It's the most horrific systemic abuse in sports in the history of the United States. And I think that it was just staggering how little. And I'll actually be referring to work that Lindsay's done. And Lindsay, just really the work, I've got, you know, if I'm talking about lack of media coverage, the work you have put forward to this, like, a hat tip to you because like I've been relying on you heavily and I know this work is exhausting. So when I say that, I also want to add that mad respect and much love and lots of self-care to the people that have been covering this because it's not easy. Now, in terms of the coverage or lack thereof, and which Larry Nassar had the audacity to say to the judge that he accused her of a quote-unquote media circus, which is not true. The Indianapolis Star broke this story, and we had in in September of 2016. And in a previous episode, we did have the journalist on that had been following this. And then Lansing State Journal had covered it. Devorah Myers from Deadspin had been covering. I think the, um, and Jessica wrote a piece for BuzzFeed yesterday on it. I think it's important to know that there was less than 20 minutes combined of Fox News, MSNBC, CNN on this entire case. And we're talking about everything from facts to witness testimony to actual court because he's been sentenced. This is just now what we're seeing as the victim impact. But the fact that it hadn't been covered the way it ought to be is is just so devastating. And instead, we're hearing about I don't know. You like President Agent Orange having temper tantrums in Ford Mag, Forbes magazines, and I did, like it's just getting lost, and it shouldn't be. And Brian Graham of uh, the Guardian actually wrote an article about this and why it's not getting more attention. And he wrote about this, and he said it's just that people don't care, and that really struck me because. The reality is there are systems of violent systems in place, and do people really not care if people call up their local stations and say, "Listen, we we want to hear about this. why is this not being reported?" If they tweet accurately like these things actually do make a difference and For people to say it's also also I understand difficult for people to hear and read about it and it can be triggering and lots of love out there to the survivors who are being re-triggered by this. But this is a systematic problem within this board and in the United States and in many other countries that we the only way to clean out this dirty laundry is to air it. It needs to be out there. And Again, first and foremost, love and support to the survivors, those who have come forward and those who still can't. But in terms of media, you have a responsibility and not only to cover it, to cover it responsibly, use media toolkits if need be, Chicago Task Force of Festo. like it needs to be done and please do it responsibly.
4: Jessica, you you actually wrote in BuzzFeed about people caring or not caring enough.
0: Yeah, I did. They don't seem to care enough. in in my experience and from the circles I run in, even though like I run in one like this one right here where we care very deeply. The article, you know, framed around the Sandusky trial, which a lot of from Penn State, which just inundated the news like on all sides. And my entire point with the piece was to say that what we've learned, what this is the mask drawn back is that All that Sandusky coverage actually had nothing to do with the victims in that case and caring about child sexual abuse, that it was literally just the institution and specifically that coach, Joe Pa, that everyone loves so much and that we can see that because here we have this horrific case with Nasser that doesn't receive the same kind of intensity of media scrutiny it's not that people haven't been covering it there's of course there's the defensive response to the piece that like there's lots of articles about this and i heard about it from one of my friends so that you must be wrong and i just you know how are you ever going to prove that the intensity of the media coverage is very different, that the tenor and the fa- and the flavor of it is very different? But I feel like we – I mean, it seems obvious to me, and, and I think that's because they don't have an institution or a famous person that they identify with and care deeply about that's involved here. And it's, it's not about the victims. Like, it's not actually about that and trying to mitigate that kind of harm, and I think – That was really what I wanted to draw attention to.
4: Lindsay, as somebody who's covered this intensely, do you have something to comment in terms of media coverage of this? Yeah, I think, that there needs to be a line
1: drawn between reporting and coverage because the reporting on this case has been absolutely fantastic and it is because especially of the Indianapolis Star and the Lansing State Journal reporters that we are at this point. I mean, you know, they their reporting led to these brave survivors coming forward and got us to this point. So there's been phenomenal reporting. But that study that Shireen mentioned that I wrote about about 20 minutes, so this this was last week that there was Monday through Friday morning. And it looked at CNN, Fox news and MSNBC. So three 24 hour, seven days a week, cable news stations. And it tallied, in all the four days and all the, the stations, just less than 20 minutes of coverage on this case. And this was the biggest week for the case in the media, because it was the week that all of the victims were speaking day after day, nine to five in court. So that was, you know, really, for me, a staggering number, because we're not expecting, unfortunately, at this point, for those networks to do any new report, you know, like new investigative reporting on this. But they they should be amplifying it and they should be treating it like something people should care about because so many people get, you know, their cues about what to care about from those cable news stations. And building on Jessica's point that this is a great example of how the Paterno scandal wasn't or the, you know, what Sandusky did, the people were more outraged about paterno's legacy than they were about the child sex abuse and on that note i think that i've heard a lot maybe we just don't care about female victims maybe we care about you know male victims but i think society has told us that we don't really care about male victims of sexual assault either right we care about men's sports and the legacies of men's sports much more than we do women's sports but we treat all victims like shit
4: okay so on the burn pile which is already just flaming 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 flames up to the sky Jessica what are you gonna throw on
0: yeah so I'm gonna start then the enabling part of this and I want to talk very about one specific enabler of NASA's who's getting less attention overall because there's so so many fingers to be pointed here but I want to talk about this guy his name is John Geddert and he was the head coach of the U.S. women's gymnastics team for the 2012 London, or in 2012 London, when the Fierce Five, Gabby Douglas, Michaela Maroney, Allie Raceman, Kyla Ross, and Jordan Weaver, won gold. Four of those women, Douglas, Maroney, Raceman, and now Weaver, have said that NASA abused them. Weaver, the 2011 World All-Around Champion, was personally coached by Geddert, who is the owner of Twistar's USA Gymnastics Club near East Lansing. On Tuesday last week, Outside the Lines published a long piece on Nassar's enablers, and the first one profiled was Geddert. Here's how his relationship to Nassar is described in the piece. Quote, the two men were all but inseparable, professionally and socially. They worked together for more than 25 years, first at Great Lakes Gymnastics and starting in 1996 at the gym Geddert owns now, Twistar's. They worked the 2012 Olympics together. Getter was in Nasser's wedding party when Nasser got married in East Lansing in 1996. They attended each other's house parties and traveled the country and later the world together competitions. They vouched for each other when faced with career-threatening circumstances. Most disturbingly, when we're listing in a hierarchy, at least one woman has said very clearly that Getter knew of Nasser's abuse. This is how Outside the Lines wrote it up. Quote, on at least one occasion, Getter walked into the back room of Twistars while Nasser was digitally penetrating a young gymnast, according to the woman's court testimony. And this is what she said All I remember is him, Nasser, doing the treatment on me with his fingers and my vagina, massaging, massaging my back with a towel over my butt, and John walking in and making a joke that I guess my back really did hurt. The gymnasts who spoke to OTL about Gettert connect the two men through their abuse. In two separate incidents, a parent and a gymnast reported Geddert to the police for assault. The gymnast told police that Geddert stepped on her toe, grabbed her arm, and pushed her into the wall to discipline her. Nasser texted that gymnast's grandmother to plead on Geddert's behalf. Lindsay Lemke, who started training at Tristar's, when she was seven years old and is currently a senior at Michigan State University, spoke about Getter's behavior this week. Quote, he would take girls by the shoulders, squeeze hard enough to leave marks, shake them, and yell directly into their face. There was specifically one time where he picked up the vault hand mat and hit me with it because I couldn't get my vault right that day, and this was already after I had crashed into the vault hard enough to bruise and bleed. The quote that will forever stay with me, though, from this piece that OTL did is about how the two men's abusive behaviors— fed each other. One gymnast told OTL, quote, part of what enabled this is John broke little girls' spirits and bodies, and Larry was there to fix them. This made me think about how often we excuse coaches' behavior, which in any other context would be seen as abusive because that's how you, because we have this idea of this is how you make athletes better. You berate them, you push them around, you make them feel little in order to see if they can rise above that. John broke little girls' spirits and bodies, and Larry was there to fix them. We have to reckon with that part of this too. Uh, it, it's difficult to just
4: hear hear that. It's it's so important to recognize that this isn't about one person, but who oh, breaking little girls' spirits is nothing anyone should be should be doing. So, speaking about Michigan State, I mean, just to segue into my burn, I, I went to Michigan State. And I belong to the Campus Feminist Collective. I worked at the Women's Resource Center. I know that there are people at Michigan State who would have moved mountains to prevent this. And they could have, but for the irresponsibility of the officials that were already informed. And so it's unbelievable to me what has happened. It is unbelievable. But in any case, now it's believable and we have to process and digest that This is this week what I'm burning, (laughs) pissed me off so bad. Patrick Fitzgerald, the lead attorney for Michigan State University in the cases, defended MSU's response to Nassar in a letter to the Michigan Attorney General. And he said, he said, quote, the evidence will show that no MSU official believed that Nassar committed sexual abuse prior to newspaper reports in the summer of 2016. End of quote. The operative word here is Believe. They didn't believe people. They were informed. They had the information, but they did not believe those students. They did not believe those women. They did not believe softball player Tiffany Thomas Lopez, who told at least two different trainers she was assaulted at least 10 times by Larry Nasser in 2000. She went unheard and ended up leaving softball and then MSU. Even after the Title IX investigation concluded Nasser's procedures constituted violations, he continued to be employed for 16 months. It's unbelievable to me. And I would like to say that at the very least, you know, the students at Michigan State the are absolutely clear about, about this. A couple of days ago, the associated students of Michigan State University The student government passed a resolution saying, quote, we as undergraduate students no longer have the faith and confidence in the current administration of Michigan State University to carry out the duties of fostering a safe and secure campus atmosphere. End of quote. All of these people need to resign. This is unbelievable. And I just want to continue. A few days ago, the Board of Trustees then reiterated their support for President Luanna Simon, even though it's clear that she knew this. She's supposed to
1: reiterated
4: their support this week. This week. Two days ago. (laughs) Yeah. Two days ago. And (sighs) and and she responded that she is watching the testimony by live streaming. Now, I'm sorry. She showed up
1: one day for a couple of hours. She did show up for a couple of hours, Right, but she claims she's (gasps)
4: watching everything live streaming. It's 10 minutes. It's a 10-minute drive. And I would just like to say if people feel frustrated. You know what's amazing about this? The MSU Board of Trustees consists of eight members for eight-year terms, two members selected every two years by the people of Michigan in a statewide general election. So, Michiganders, get your asses up and vote these people out. The current chairperson, Brian Breslin from the Republican Party, already said he's not gonna, he's not gonna run again. So anyway, I'm just gonna end on burning it, but I also wanna like put flame to the feet of people in Michigan and say, do not let these people represent you. You have an option. You know, it's not like Harvard where their trustees are like God knows who, right? These are elected officials and they need to be, they need to be held to task. Okay, sorry about that. Shireen, yeah.
3: Just quickly, one of our faves uh, on Burn It All Down, Jamal Hill, actually published today in The Undefeated. Today is Sunday and she also is an MSU grad and she writes just really profoundly, Michigan State needs to wear this shame. The university deserves this humiliation, derision, doubt, discomfort and every unkind word. We need to listen to every word from the victims and absorb all of their anger. They've dealt with this betrayal and violation of their trust for years. Michigan State only has to survive a few news cycles. It's really, you know, just really important that, and thank you, Bren, and all those MSU alumnus who are out there calling them out because it's important.
2: And as somebody who works at Penn State, who has really been, you know, reckoning with similar ways to move forward. I think one of the things that you pointed to, Brenda, is is so important about mobilization and that there are people I work in the women's studies department here who is amazing. They are, they, Part of what they do and their students are demanding accountability. And the thing with these institutions, that they're so large that they can be points of reckoning and they're people that you can build with. And it's always going to be a battle. It continues to be a battle here. And, and it's been a few years. And I think that that's the other thing that people need to realize, that you're strapping in for a really long battle where a lot of people in power don't want to give that up easily. Um, this is just the beginning.
4: Absolutely. Lindsay, do you want to pour gasoline on this burn pile? <laughs> just, just <laughs> don't, make it happen I, don't I
1: always well I want, did want to really quickly say that, that on Saturday one MSU trustee Mitch Lyons did call for the resignation of President Lou Anna K. Simon we'll see if that is a trend of course on the same day the basketball coach Tom Izzo reiterated his support and said quote I hope the right person is convicted so <laughs> You know, anyways, MSU, if Michigan State could get a PR person or something, if they can't get a soul, can you at least get a PR person? Like, I don't know. Anyways, it's just, it's just infuriating. All right. Are we, are we ready to go to the, the mammoth? The mammoth? Let's talk USA gymnastics and US Olympic committee, shall we? So first of all, the first known direct report to USA Gymnastics officials about the abuse was in 2015. And we can burn everything about their response since then. And that in itself is enough for like a humongous scandal. But I really quickly would like to say that it's important to note that John Geddert was a USA Gymnastics certified coach in 1998 when he was told about the abuse and he found out about the abuse. Twist Stars is a USA Gymnastics Certified Gym. And that means that they had the responsibility to report it to USA Gymnastics in the late 90s. So USA Gymnastics, if everyone had done their jobs, would have known in the late 1990s, even if the Michigan State element of this wasn't going on. And that's gotten lost. And that is appalling, And I'd also like to note that all of this is happening within the context of a larger uh, sexual abuse scandal at USA Gymnastics. So this is from the very first Indianapolis Star investigation into this that launched all this. But remember, the very first Indianapolis Star investigation into this was into the systematic sexual abuse at USA Gymnastics. It wasn't even focused on Larry Nassar. It was just that Rachel Denhollander read this investigation. We had her on the show a few weeks ago, episode 31. It's a must listen. And, you know, so when she read their big investigation, that's when she came forward about NASA and got the ball rolling there. But just so, okay, so, so top executives have failed to alert authorities to many allegations of sexual abuse, and they relied on policies that enable predators to abuse gymnasts long after USA Gymnastics had received warnings That is a quote from the Indianapolis Star investigation. So that's, it's a really important context for all of this because USA gymnastics denials just don't fit with like the history that we know. But let's talk a little bit about, let's start in 2015. Okay. In 2015, Sarah Jancy, who was the coach of Maggie Nichols, who was an elite gymnast at the time, who was expected to be on the Olympics team in 2016 before she was injured. But anyways, Sarah overheard Nichols telling Allie Raisman about one of Nasser's treatment sessions This coach was very alarmed and notified USA Gymnastics officials immediately, as well as Nichols' parents. USA Gymnastics, you think they would, they want you to think that they notified law enforcement right away. That's what they initially said. They did not, however. It took them five weeks. The first thing they did was to hire a workplace harassment investigator to look into the matter. It took them five weeks, and it should be noted, and I have to credit the, the podcast Gymtastic uh, which it, or Gymcastic, excuse me, which is an excellent gymnastics podcast, but for pointing this out for me, where the independent investigator actually gave them the report, gave UC Gymnastics the report at the end of one week, saying that like, yes, you need to deliver this to the FBI. And uh, UC Gymnastics waited till the following business day, which was Monday, to report it, because the FBI probably doesn't take calls on the weekend. So anyways, around the time the USA Gymnastics finally notified the FBI, Nasser and the USA Gymnastics committee officially parted ways, but USA Gymnastics allowed Nasser to publicly portray it as a retirement. He wrote a sappy retirement post on Facebook. USA Gymnastics did not notify Twistars, which once again is a USA Gymnastics accredited gym where they knew Nasser was treating patients, nor did they nor did they notify Michigan State University. Whew. Okay. <laughs> Then again, okay, so it took until mid 2016 for the FBI to actually interview Allie Raceman and Maggie Nichols. It didn't interview Allie Raceman until after the 2016 Olympics, which I just don't feel is a coincidence. Do you? It actually took nine months for the FBI investigation into this to get officially launched, and it took that long for uh USA Gymnastics to call them up and say, hey, are you actually investigating this or not? During this whole time, they told parents that they, who were there being interviewed, they told parents that they could not talk about this publicly. And that the reason they were not talking about this publicly was because of the FBI investigation, the one that wasn't launched for so many months. Whew, okay, <laughs> sorry. uh It's been a really, this is one of those cases where every single detail I, I, Like find is more appalling than the last. So we also know that they paid Michaela Maroney $1.25 million to stay silent. There's believed to be other confidentiality agreements that USA Gymnastics paid out as well. There was a non-disclosure agreement included in that, but that they're saying now that they will not, you know, support that. Uh, which is good. You know, that's that's so kind of them. They also said Maggie Nichols spoke came out publicly to ESPN this past week for for the first time as a victim, a as the person who first reported to USA Gymnastics in this, though, gymna- USA Gymnastics gave a jaw dropping response to Maggie Nichols criticizing that they waited five weeks to report this to the FBI. By saying that after its private investigator talked to to Raisman and Nichols, it didn't have, quote, reasonable suspicion that they had been molested by Nasser. It took until they spoke to a third victim. They released this statement this week during all this trials going on. Oh, my God. Okay, so let's take it to how USA Gymnastics and U.S. US Olympic Committee, who oversees USA Gymnastics, have been held accountable for this. Well, they haven't. Steve Penny, who was the president of USA, the CEO, I believe, of USA Gymnastics, was finally forced out last, just this last spring. So once again, quite some time, you know, over six months after the Indy Star investigation came out, he did receive a $1 million severance package. However, everybody else on the USA Gymnastics board, including Chairman Paul Perilla, who I, I believe the chairman of the board is like big boss man, if I understand, you know, executive talk, the vice president, the treasurer, they have. All of these people who do staunchly defended everything Steve Penny did, who, and we know that Steve Penny explicitly asked the gymnast and their parents to keep quiet. They all staunchly defended him and they all still have their jobs. There are calls for USA Gymnastics to completely clean house. Down to even some trainers. One trainer, Debbie Van Horn, who is now the USAG's Director of Sports Medicine Services. are calls on her to step down immediately because she worked directly beside Nasser for two decades and was supposed to be the other female in the room during Nasser's treatments. <laughs> she was recently promoted. Also, <laughs> A lot of this abuse happened at the Crowley Ranch, Betty and Martha Crowley, who we know there have been allegations that they are physically and verbally abusive for years. We can go back to there. I know I'm going long. I'm sorry. There's just so much here, but uh, you know, when Jess, when you were talking about Geddard and that emotionally abusive environment, you know, I couldn't physically abusive. I couldn't help think that the same thing is happening at the Crowley Ranch, right? Which is the the centralized system for USA Gymnastics has built it into this powerhouse and. Look, it's important to know that at the at this Crowley Ranch compound, which parents are not allowed to attend, often private coaches aren't allowed to attend, and it is isolated to the point that it's hard to find.
2: Exactly, and Ali Ali's point was so great this week. Sorry to jump in, that at the same time that they released the statement saying, "Okay, we're not going to have gymnasts return to the Crowley Ranch," they had people there that right. same day training. So,
1: so, so just going back just a little. bit, at the Crowley Ranch, Nasser was allowed to enter their dorms privately. He was allowed to treat them wherever, which goes against every regulation. You got every single one. And a lot of the gymnasts, including, so it was really elite gymnasts who were here, but Simone Biles, Allie Raisin, Maggie Nichols, Kayla Maroney have all said they were abused at the Crowley Ranch. And up until earlier this week, the Crowley Ranch was still the place where the national team was going to train. When Simone Biles came forward with her statement, she said, said, I can't believe I'm going to go in order to make the next Olympics. I'm going to have to go back to the place where I was abused. So finally this week, USA Gymnastics announced that it was parting ways with the Crowley Ranch. That it was looking for other places and that it was canceling the next national, tra- national team training camp so that it could find another ranch. However, like Amir just told us there were gymnasts there currently training at the time. And there's an there's an artistic gymnastics or acrobatic gymnastics, excuse me, event happening there in February because it was too late to reschedule. If you're wondering, nobody from the USOC showed up to hear testimony all week. Allie Raisman asked, I would like to finish this by saying, why isn't the U.S. Olympic Committee here now? I've represented the U.S. in two Olympics, and both USAG and the USOC have been quick to capitalize on my success. But did they reach out to me when I came forward? No, they did not. And USOC has not taken away USAG's Olympic certification. So,
4: burn. Oh my god. Okay. All right, all right. This deserves like a huge chorus of burns right now. Like this is like, let's just burn it loud burns. Ready? Burn! 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 Burn Burn. Burn. Burn it! Burn it! Burn it all down.
0: That's it for this week's episode. Thank you for joining us. There's so much more content than what we have provided today. This is the 86th. 86th consecutive week that we've published an episode. So there's plenty more where all of this came from. We encourage you to look back at our catalog and see what from Burn It All Down you've missed. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you want to subscribe to Burn It All Down, you can do so on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, and TuneIn. For information about the show, links, and transcripts for each episode, and to email us, check out our website, burnitalldownpod.com. And if you'd like to purchase Burn It All Down merchandise, we have some for you at Teespring. Treat yourself to a -A B.I.A.D. mug, pillow, hoodie, buy gear for your whole family, including babies and kids. And now for some asks. If you enjoyed this week's show, please share this episode with family, friends, work colleagues, neighbors, people at the dog park you talk sports with, whomever you think would be interested in Burn It All Down. Also, please, please, please rate the show at whichever place you listen to it. The ratings help us reach new listeners who need this feminist sports podcast but don't yet know it exists. Finally, please check out our Patreon and give us a gift this holiday season. If you can, sign up to be a monthly sustaining donor to Burn It All Down and get exclusive content you can't get anywhere else, such as Patreon-only segments, a monthly newsletter, and even a chance to contribute to the burn pile. You can find the Patreon at Patreon, patreon.com slash burnitalldown. We're grateful to everyone who has signed up so far. Your patronage allows us to create this independent, commercial-free feminist sports podcast. We could not, we could not do this without you all. Thank you. That's it for Burn It All Down. For Amira Rose Davis, Shereen Ahmed, Brenda Elsie, and Lindsay Gibbs, four of the best people I know, I'm Jessica Luther. Next week, we'll be back with our favorite interviews from this year. Until then, and in this case, until next year, See you in 2019.